Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, Nick and I will be talking through some of the recent news in the sector. Well, you know that because that's what we do, but talking through some ESG ratings as well as a lot from uh, Hurricane Ian. So, Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. We have a lot to cover today, so I'll take us into our first news story. And we wanted to talk about something that's not necessarily top of mind for nonprofits, but something that's still worth talking about. And that is ESG ratings for publicly traded companies. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's a way that uh, financial products and banks and investment banks offer those products to consumers. It's a way of grouping together companies that supposedly adhere to environmental, social, and governance standards of some sort. But we wanted to highlight this because there was a pretty scathing op-ed in the New York Times that essentially debunked how much ESG ratings or being on or off that list does when it comes to social impact. So this op-ed makes clear that ESG and ESG-related financial products, whether it's particular funds or, or indexes, are at best unproven in their effectiveness and at worst, a marketing ploy designed to obfuscate the harm done by some of the companies on those lists. Um, So we wanted to bring this to attention of our nonprofit listeners because we think that as we continue to work through quite a wobbly economy, it's important that nonprofits think in the mind of the consumers, right? Folks who might not be in a position to just give money away, particularly wealthy investors, might be looking for other investment types, but also want to you know, contribute to social impact. And the way that ESG products are marketed, that may now be a potential avenue that folks who want to give money, but also want to make sure that money is going towards social impact, that might now be something on their radar in addition to traditional funds. So we think it's just important that nonprofits educate themselves, development folks at nonprofits educate themselves about conversations when it comes to what consumers, donors, and investors might be thinking when it comes to social impact and understanding environmental, social governance, um, particularly as it relates to the stock market and financial products, I think is important, especially as we begin to see uh, more substantial shifts in, uh, in philanthropy and giving crypto donations, giving that the whole industry. I think this is something that needs to be top of mind. Thanks, Nick. That's a really interesting take. And like, as we're like saying, like, why nonprofits in this? Because I also see it bleeding into the cause marketing, cause washing world in so much as they've essentially have a 
unregulated rating agency that oversees ESG and seems to pass out uh, these ratings to organizations that you might come around and say, uh, I'm kind of confused how, you know, most technology stocks like, you know, Meta and Alphabet, and then you get Coca-Cola and Pepsi, incredibly high ESG scores, yet they still are manufacturing in ways that are clearly doing damage to water supplies internationally, leading into obesity, mortality rates. Like it is, it's hard to say that this is like not a, a good attempt at trying to clean up businesses, but essentially it is a rubber stamp and folks are learning how to game the system to get there, bypassing the actual work that needs to be done. Where nonprofits step in is sort of helping, I'd say, expose this, continue to push pressure on companies that are misbehaving poorly, pointing out actually what happens, not just the rubber stamp that happens to be applied to them. And I think there is, you know, is a, a potential for nonprofit run types of groups. I mean, I, I look at B Corp. We're a B Corp. I know other B Corps. It is, you know... <laughs> only measured in the number of thousands really of, of organizations, but it's very rigorous in terms of how they go about checking and then rechecking uh, that certification. And, you know, things that pop up like ESG without, you know, when you look behind the curtain, uh, it, I'll just say it makes me frustrated <laughs> on a couple levels. And I hope that nonprofits can step in and, and put pressure on, on a broken system. And then also, I think there is a question of how you try to like merge all of the public interest into one clean number. This is a good note for anybody who's on that the sort of team of like, I just need one metric to rule them all. And, and in truth, it is hard to weigh carbon emissions, pollution, security, employment practices, and diversity of corporate boards all into one equal number. It may not be the best way to go. I think when you are, are dealing with intractable problems. It's best not to push them all into one soup and hope that something good happens. I think we need to focus energy on where that is. And you know what? As much as Exxon freaking mobile is an ESG company, I would take a pause and say, maybe we tease out the E, the S, and the G a touch more. And I think there's a role for nonprofits in this. Yeah, George, absolutely. I think about there are organizations that attempt to, you know, quantify impact, both for nonprofits and for businesses, right? But that's not what these ESG ratings are doing, right? There are not human rights investigations into supply chains. That takes a ton of work. It takes a ton of transparency. I know that you have gone through the B Corp certification process. It's an invasive and rigorous process that is nowhere near what this is doing. And I think that nonprofits need to be aware that when it comes to marketing social impact, in this case, my perspective is that some of these ratings are appropriating the language of impact and responsibility um, and potentially entering into social impact as a competitor to nonprofits that are actually driven not by market 
profits, but by actual social impact and, and cutting away um, some of that attention. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind. And I think it's it's probably better than nothing, right? But we need to strive for much, much more. Look, a great example, a comp of this is Common Sense Media, commonsensemedia.org, which it, frankly, it's, I think it's the leading source at this point of entertainment and technology recommendations for families and parents, like speaking as a parent. And I want to understand like what is contained in a movie and how like uh, how much adult material may be in there and appropriate for a kid of a certain age. I go there. I don't go to the like the PG-13, whatever we can have you know, this many bullets kill this many people kind of like base rating. I go to a nonprofit that has looked, analyzed, and I trust. That's really what I would hope to see breaking out E, S, insert pause, G. Absolutely. And we'll actually I feel like we back. both got our rants on that. That was good. That was good. I feel like warmed up now. You got you had you had a strong rant off the off the front there. That was that was good. Usually you're like all information. You brought a little spice. I liked it, Nick. I was coming in hot. I care about this. Um, yeah, and we'll come back to this when we talk about perception of social impact in nonprofits because I think that's important as well. So we'll touch back on this a little bit later in the podcast. Some of these broader themes. But I do want to take us to our next story. And this is from USA Today, but of course, everywhere, um, helping during Hurricane Ian. So last week, Hurricane Ian hit southern Florida. Um, the whole state was hit badly, um, particularly the west coast of Florida. And we have here a list of resources um, which folks can volunteer and donate to. And sadly, this actually comes just last week. Uh, we were talking about Hurricane Fiona uh, hitting Puerto Rico, uh, which was still reeling from Hurricane Maria. So we're in the height of hurricane season. Uh, hurricane Ian looks like it's poised to be one of the most costly and sadly one of the deadliest hurricanes in recent U.S. history. Um, so, George, I mean, we have to we have to talk about it. It's the biggest news story. It affects the most people. Uh, what's what what? Do we want to highlight with the story? Again, reminder of the narrow window to to fundraise and take action. Um, I think there uh, is interesting. We included this one article from USA Today because I always find it fascinating who sort of gets the line in terms of like the nonprofit that gets listed. And you get your, you know, American Red Crosses for sure. And then you get local organizations uh, that that get top of mind or get promoted in an article like this. And it, it's tough because clearly there's an editorial decision playing favorites. And I think there's some thought for maybe nonprofits. Why does it pay to be top of mind when a disaster happens or to have those relationships with local press outlets is because when they're pushing out there and somebody is searching for, how can I help? What can I do? Pay attention to what that looks like in the context of your organization, and maybe that reframes how your communications department, PR department, and fundraising department work together to get on lists like this. Because frankly, it's the, the wallet opens for a short period of time when a disaster happens. Um, and what's more, you know, there's the, you know, the 
the great reasons for donating food, donating blood, donating money. Like there's a lot of, in addition to like, you know, they don't necessarily need a bunch of volunteers to like start driving to Florida right now because that won't be the best call. So uh, there are ways, I think, of also organizations that are adjacent to rally their supporters to help another nonprofit or in another way, such as, again, organizing maybe a blood drive and doing that. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, my nonprofit didn't raise any money. But yeah. You have brought your community together. You have positioned yourself uh, in a in a different way in their eyes, and I think there there might be more to participating in national disasters in your own way. Yeah, absolutely, George. That's a great take. A, a personal anecdote is one of my first ever jobs. It wasn't even a job; it was an internship. Which was uh, with a small organization based out of Nepal uh, circa 2014-2015. And uh, what happened was the small organization got a ton of American press after the earthquake in Nepal, devastating earthquake in Nepal. This is an organization in which the board is doing half the work. I think they had one or two full-time employees. And um, that being top of mind and those just basic press mentions, um, gave them more resources than they could ever dream of. And I actually came on as a volunteer to help them process some of that. So uh, the difference for, for this organization was night and day. And uh, this organization on the ground, a Nepali-based, run by a, a Nepal uh, Nepal executive. It was like a local organization. It was the best case scenario, right? You had uh, tons of funds going to a local on the ground organization that knew the community, knew the people really, really well. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was that was the difference for these communities um, for being able to access relief um, versus versus not. And this organization was quite frankly much better poised to address the issues. Uh, stemming from the disaster in the communities, as opposed to the larger organizations that didn't have infrastructure there to begin with. Um, and it was all because of a couple of press mentions. Um, so it does go a long way. This next article is interesting. And it's uh, it borderlines on a, an opinion, but not. But it's a, what happened to giving money to charity? And this is a Vox article. And it, it basically points out that over the past, you know, two decades, you know, in this century, um, two thirds of households gave to charitable organizations. And in 2018, just under half of American households did. Okay, so in 2000 to 2018, that's going from two thirds to half. And in other words, they put it in <laughs> the raw numbers, 20 million Americans have stopped giving. However, conversely, last year, giving exceeded from the total count of uh, $480 billion. So the total amount of money increases, but the participation of Americans giving is decreasing. And we are easily able to track the, the types of things that happen at the, you know, the McKinsey Scott levels, right? It's, it's easy to follow those Bezos bucks around. However, it is getting harder to find the ways that Americans are giving. So the question, I guess, in some respects is like, is it just like getting harder to track these types of, of donations at scale? Um, or is there something something else happening? And they talk about 
reasons for for drops in macro senses of like maybe the Great Recession in 2010. Clearly, we're aware of what's going on right now. It'll be probably called a recession in five years from now, but they don't want to scare us now. I think the bigger one maybe is that it ties to religious giving. And I think uh, there's probably a, a larger trend appeal out there where uh, 29% of Americans now report having no religious affiliation compared to 16% in 2007. And I think giving to religious institutions as the largest share, that is probably where that is dropping. So if you are in the religious territory, I'd be concerned, but it's interesting because I think it has pushed more of those donors out uh, to more other giving uh, nonprofits. But I, I also wonder if that sort of idea of a charitable spirit, <laughs> idea of a charitable spirit, isn't more uh, revived, reminded in the religious context than is in the general. Uh, the general population and what drives these types of things. And that's why I'm a big fan of things like Giving Tuesday that bring it to national attention. I, uh, I'm i a fan of anything that normalizes, you know, uh, not just like, hey, what's in your portfolio, but like what's in your, what is it in your giving basket? Like where where do you give money? And normalizing those conversations and among all levels of conversation. And, and so if you're dropping the religious participation in the country, how are you still increasing and reminding the the spirit of giving uh giving to others so i just thought it was just interesting um as a as a you know a step back before we walk into giving season yeah george i agree with you and the relig- the religious giving component of this is particularly fascinating because i think americans still underestimate how uh how large a percentage of America's charities are actually religiously affiliated as well. Um, so I think those trends kind of bear out. But another another piece that the, the article actually mentioned, which was kind of really interesting, was about uh, direct giving. So uh, giving on platforms like GoFundMe and kind of like direct <laughs> uh, charitable campaigns. And I think this is a really important trend too, is that particularly younger people might be more primed and poised to donate to those like immediate action funds, um, the the GoFundMe's, the um, those kind of uh, peer-to-peer giving uh, opportunities as opposed to larger nonprofits. And I think it's up to nonprofits to make up the gap there, because I don't think that those, uh, you know, those campaigns are more impactful. Uh, there's higher risks. You know, you're just kind of giving money to th- these campaigns, not saying they're they're good or bad, but it's up to nonprofits to say, hey, we are just the more transparent, accountable, uh, mature, and measurable iteration of those direct peer-to-peer fundraising campaigns. Um, so I think nonprofits have work to do when it comes to millennial and Gen Z donors as well. Nick, I've got a, a fun surprise for you. I actually did chase down RIP Medical. RIP Medical, that I've been saying I did it. We actually have an upcoming podcast that if I get my editing and gear, we should be listening to before uh, before the week where next week is out and we, uh, spoiler alert, the topic of GoFundMe comes up because most of the money that's like 
donated and given there, one is not through a nonprofit, but it's also uh, for medical debt. And RIP medical debt is, I would say, 100x by like the data of putting $1 to them versus $1 direct into a random medical bill that happened to tell their story better than the next one to the side of them and had more rich friends than the other person. So they got their number, but you didn't. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So you'll see this thread again very shortly. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Um, we'll, we'll just keep the ball rolling. We had another spicy one. Uh, this is from The Guardian. And the headline of this article is that a Pennsylvania school district is accused of banning Girls Who Code book series. There's some controversy as to whether it actually got banned, but Girls Who Code is a nonprofit that advocates just that for girls who code and for computer science, literacy and access to education and all sorts of things that I think we can all agree are good. Uh, but according to this article, uh, one Pennsylvania school district um, seems to have banned those books, either intentionally or not, in uh, the new trend sweeping America, which is uh, banning books from classroom. And quote unquote, um, in the article, uh, the books were banned for, for being too woke, um, for having a social justice lens. Uh, God forbid we let girls enter computer. It's, it's thoroughly outrageous. Um, but this is a nonprofit advocating for potentially the least controversial thing of all time and are now on the receiving end of absurd culture wars. I don't have a solution to this, but it's a crazy story. Yeah, look, I think extremists are going to do extreme things. And when we isolate geographically more and more over time, you get to, to see that. You get to see what you know. I could find on a Reddit forum in a, in a small area of Pennsylvania, but a whole district is a little disturbing. Yeah. You know, as you poke into it, there's questions of like, all right, they had long lists of books that were banned, which is a different type of problem. I actually have a weirder take on this. And <laughs> I think this is actually really great for girls who code. Like, let's just be honest. They put out a book series meant to just educate, but they also have an entire website, an entire online uh, presence where, frankly, uh, I'm sorry, Pennsylvania district, you can't ban the internet, right? So there's still access to the information. But what it does do is bring it to this national attention, probably increased donations, searches, that type of frustration being, well, I'm going to go give money to them so they can do more of it. So here is the hot take. Can your organization create a children's book and just get it out there and just see what happens? Because apparently it's really not too hard to trigger a banning. I don't know. Let's just have a bit of diversity in the dangers of STEM. If that's the line that you have to cross, something tells me half of the nonprofits talking right now could probably create a children's book that touches at least one of those buttons. So uh, hopefully challenge accepted. Go off, do it, get press for getting banned and, and raise awareness of Frankly, the, the, the censorship of schools, um, that's, a, that's my funny hot take on this because I'm too frustrated to, to like directly understand why this is a bad thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's it's a tactic. Thoroughly. 
there's a tactic. Uh, you 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 risk uh, entering into online culture wars, which um, we've had clients that have unintentionally been dragged into those. They are not fun. Um, so proceed with caution, <laughs> I should say. Um, but yeah, just like that. Yeah, hold on. Here's the risks and disclaimers notice. This is not financial advice. Nothing should be taken as financial advice. I'm getting Absolutely. used to saying that, I guess. Do not take us at word. <laughs> um, all right. Our... But seriously, write a children's book. Do it, do it, do it. <laughs> do it for the children. Our last story is about Indigenous Peoples Day um, overtaking Columbus Day across the country. So uh, Indigenous Peoples Day is officially celebrated in many states, officially not. In other states, it's kind of a, a mishmash. Um, it was announced as a federal holiday uh, by the Biden administration, or at least a federally recognized holiday. I think there's some questions as whether it's an official, official federal holiday. It's kind of unclear. But either way, Indigenous Peoples Day is now um, a, a legitimate holiday more so than ever. Um, and we have an article here um, that links to how we approach this in um, our diversity and inclusion tool, which I'll pass to you, George, to talk more about. Yeah, it was funny. We went back and forth on whether or not it has it officially replaced Columbus Day at the federal level. But also interesting is that states can choose whether or not they recognize Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. And I'll play a quick game. Uh, over under 13 states, Nick, that still do not recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. And audience, play at home, please. You think it's more or less than 13 states? So do I think that more or less than 13 states don't recognize? Do not. Don't recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. I think it's over. I'm a little, I'm a little pessimistic about America. There you go. You're right. 14 states as of 2022 still do not recognize the day, which I just found fascinating. Like I do, we were just doing a lot of original research, but also the, the other truth here that kind of was interesting to me is that looking at Google search trends, uh, despite the fact that, you know, oh my gosh, only, you know, the rest of the states, frankly, are, are all above board being recognized. It, the internet searches suggest something wildly different, much different here with regard to Columbus Day getting, uh, you know, 8x the amount of searches over Indigenous Peoples Day. So that when people are looking for, you know, what day is that day off? Or when is that day coming? They're using Columbus Day uh, about eight times more, I would say, if you're looking at 2021 data. And that's, um, you know, maybe like seven times more. It depends on, on how you parse it and which peak you're looking at. But in terms of recognition, acceptance, and usage, Here's the here's the thing. Indigenous people say has has a long way to go in terms of uh, surpassing usage, despite what laws may be changing. And it's interesting because oftentimes laws follow public uh, public perception and beliefs. And in this one, it seems to be leading it uh, in some ways. Just found that just kind of unique. It is. That's interesting. I think it's about time America reckons with its violent and problematic past. Um, and, and if this day uh, both recognizes that as well as celebrates the vibrant and diverse 
cultures of the indigenous and native communities in America. I am for that. So hopefully we see that Google Trends number go up. All right, how about a feel-good story, George? Yeah, I think we've kept people on the line for quite some time. They've been waiting for it. What do you got? All right, this comes from cityandstateny.com. And this is about the 2022 nonprofit Power 100. The public officials, philanthropic leaders, and nonprofit executives leading the sector in New York. George, you and I are both New Yorkers at heart, and we know how integral the uh, civil society and nonprofit community is to the city and the greater New York area. Uh, number one on this list is Twyla Carter, attorney in chief and CEO of the Legal Aid Society. Uh, making history as the first Black woman and first Asian American to lead the storied public defender service since it was founded 145 years ago. So a uh, big congratulations um, to Twyla Carter. But George, it's really cool to celebrate just the awesome work of just people who work tirelessly um, in this city and, and nonprofits across the country. And it must be must be fun to to be on this list and, and be recognized, even if, if uh, just in a small way. It's great to put celebrity level attention as much as, you know, covering in articles and pointing out these lists uh, does on the folks doing great work at great organizations. Also, another great tactic to put in the back pocket of your nonprofit. How could you create your power 100 featured 100 top you fill in the blank number and use that as an excuse to bring up a bundle of folks as a story that a local paper press may uh, may cover in a, in a local area. You've essentially added, you know, all of the work involved, recognize them, but then give them the chance to be covered. So I feel like we've given a lot of value in this, uh, this particular, eh, slightly longer than normal nonprofit news feed. Nick, thank you so much for helping us pull all that together as usual. Thanks, George. This was a fun one. See you next week. <laughs> this has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 